saints as we have been uh, over these Wednesdays uh, over the past number of months. We're arriving in chapter 7 this evening, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, we're going to be considering the first seven verses uh, here. Um, we're, we're thinking under the title uh, Love and Marriage. Love and Marriage. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, please. And we're going to read from the verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. It says, Now concerning the things whereof he wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband, and likewise also the husband hath not power over his own body, uh, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not uh, for your incontinence. I'm going to get there eventually. Boys, a dear tonight. But I speak this by permission and not of commandment. Uh, for I would that all men were even as I myself, but every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. We trust the Lord will bless the reading of his word to each of our hearts this evening. I believe that God's word it should be taught verse by verse. Of course, the Spirit of God has inspired every word that is found in the holy pages of Scripture. And therefore, we ought to work through it carefully and ensure that we study uh, every word in detail so that we don't stray from the word of God. We should take time to study uh, this book word by word, page by page, uh, verse by verse. And the beauty of teaching God's word in this way as a pastor is that you can't avoid the difficult topics. Humanly speaking, the verses that are before us tonight are yet again uncomfortable to preach. And the truth is maybe these verses are the most uncomfortable I have felt uh, teaching this particular book of the Bible. Uh, the truth is, um, I may be a bit more explicit tonight than some would like, because uh, these verses demand it, uh, but we need to waken up to the real world that we live in. Our young people especially are being taught their sexual ethics through the social media and through films and through TV programs, and they're exposed to it in their schools and educational classes. And if we don't teach what the Word of God says from our pulpits and have things, these things taught in our churches, our young people, and indeed all people, will absorb what is being taught to them and they'll have no excuse but to not believe any different. You may not like it, but Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, in these verses he's extremely explicit in some of the things that he says here. So as I always seek to do, I'm only teaching the words that are found in the pages before us, in these verses before us, and we're going to seek to unpack them. The more I've studied my Bible, the more I've come to the conclusion that 
for the people who seem to believe that the Bible is somehow old-fashioned and remote to everyday living, well, for those people, it's probably because they've never read the Bible, or if they have read it, they haven't understood it. Because as we go through the issues, the issues of our lives, and we continue to keep the Bible open on our laps, we discover that it's an intensely practical book, and that before us this evening are some of the most practical and necessary and straightforward verses that Paul ever wrote in all the letters that he penned. These verses tonight, they're about marriage, and they're about sexual relations within marriage. The verses before us uh, in the chapter, they, they also deal with singleness as well later on in the chapter, and we'll look at the great benefits of being single in a few weeks' time. For most of us, that ship has sailed, but for others, singleness is where you're found, and it could be your calling, and uh, we are going to be looking at that as we go through chapter 7. But Paul in these verses, he's, he's not attempting to bring a complete or a full theology of marriage and sexual relations, but rather is answering a specific question that was asked to him by the Corinthian church. And we'll see that in a moment. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, now it's clear that there's been some correspondence back and forth between Paul and the Corinthian church. Of course, in chapter 5 and verse 9, there was another letter referred to that Paul had written. And the Corinthians, we can assume, had wrote back to Paul. And in that letter, they included a number of questions that they wanted answered. For the rest of this letter, you're going to hear Paul's using these words that we find, the first two words in chapter 7, now concerning, or a phrase to that effect. And each time you see these words, now concerning, we'll be moving on to a new topic and the answer to the next question that the Corinthians had asked. So each time you read these words, we will see Paul graciously, pastorally, doctrinally, theologically respond to those questions. I know that some of you have asked me specific questions since I came along as pastor here. And that's a good thing. Uh, you, you want to seek out answers as you seek to understand God's word more clearly. And I love it when someone is inquisitive and asks good questions. And sometimes, as some of you have found out, um, I've had to go and do a little bit of studying and digging as well to get the answers, which is great. But uh, the first section here is to do with the whole topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We're calling it here love. And marriage. Of course, some of you of a certain generation will remember Frank Sinatra's song, Love and Marriage, go together like a horse and carriage, uh, a few smiles. And really what Paul is teaching here is what it is to be happily married. There are varying opinions on the next phrase that we find in verse 1. Paul has said, now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. First of all, to explain what it means there, it's not good for a man to touch a woman. According to Pastor John MacArthur, in his commentary in these verses, the phrase to touch a woman was a common Jewish euthanism uh, for uh, a sexual relation. And the question we need to ask here in this phrase where Paul is saying it is good for a man not to touch a woman, is Paul teaching theology here or is Paul stating the question that was sent to him by the church in order to answer it? 
Is Paul actually actually saying that it's not good for a man to touch or have sexual relations with a woman? Well, I don't believe that Paul is teaching that. One reason being in the verses that follow, Paul will immediately contradict the statement. And, and he will teach the correct place for sexual relations. Therefore, I believe this opening phrase is simply stating the question that's been asked by the Corinthians. The situation in Corinth was... And we've said it many times, not dissimilar to the culture and society that we live in in Northern Ireland. Marriages were in trouble, in deep trouble. Uh, there was incredible chaos which surrounded the whole nature of marriage and the place of singleness in Corinth. And this is where the question of touching a woman comes from. In the society in Corinth, there were four types of of marriages that could happen. This is the confusion that there was. The first was between slaves. And it was a, if a man and a woman slave wanted to be married, they could be allowed to live together in a Roman marriage bond called a tent companionship. And this arrangement only lasted as long as the owner of the slaves permitted it to last. And the owner could separate them and put them with other partners if they wanted a second type of marriage that was in this Roman society was that if a couple lived together for over a year, well, under Roman law, they were described as married. A third type was that a father would sell his daughter to a prospective husband. And the final type of marriage was, was what looks more like the Christian wedding today, where both families were involved. There was the exchanging of vows, there was the wearing of a veil by a bride, and the giving of rings, etc. So as you can see, there was a lot of confusion in the society of Corinth over what marriage was. And it caused a lot of confusion within the church. And the people were concerned and they were asking the questions, what should be done, what shouldn't be done? Is it even right, Paul, is it even right for us to be married? Some within the church of Corinth were actually advocating singleness as the only way to be. The only way to deal with all this confusion around marriage, some people was, were saying, is to remain single and celibate, not purely from practical reasons, but also for spiritual reasons. This was the tone that was going through. So the question comes to Paul, look, are we supposed to marry or not? Or is that off the board now? We had this kind of great plug for celibacy going around the church causing so much confusion. So all that, uh, by way of introduction, I do apologize for such a long introduction, but in order to understand this passage, I feel it's necessary. So how are we to be happily married, and how does Paul go about answering the question? Well, first of all, we see Paul teach uh, the monogamy of Christian marriage. And now what I mean by that is the principle in the Bible that there is to be one man for one woman and one woman for one man. Look at verse 2. Paul says, nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. That's the principle of monogamy. One man for one woman. One woman for one man. That's the principle taught in the book of Genesis. God said two shall become one. The Lord Jesus picked up on the same principle and he said two shall become one. This is a principle taught in scripture. 
And as I've said to you earlier, uh, there were many who were using this um, this spiritual attitude of you weren't to marry, and they were glorifying the celibate state, but this wasn't right. So Paul, he comes back against this teaching that was going on in Corinth, and he taught the sanctity of the marriage relationship. The sanctity. Now, when it comes to marriage, there are a number of things that need to be said. It's important for Paul to remind the Corinthians how God, out, God set out marriage from the beginning. Marriage and the intimate relationship that entails is designed by God for the pleasure of humankind. It is not a man-made invention. It is not a product or of any culture or a product of any society. It is God who created it. And it is therefore God alone who can instruct us in how marriage can function effectively and successfully. From the very beginning, God established both marriage and sexual relations in the garden. These things were all there in the beginning and always were there. Within marriage, God has commanded from the beginning that the husband and wife be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Also in Genesis chapter 2 verse 18, where God said over perfect creation, it is not good that a man should be alone. So God created out of man a helpmate. In the same way as when a man and a woman marry today, they become one flesh. The original man and wife were literally one flesh because Eve came out of Adam. So God had pronounced and Jewish tradition had said throughout the years, that marriage was good. Why? Because it was from God. So we must recognize the sanctity of the marriage relationship. Why? Because it comes from God. God is the creator of it. He is the originator of it. And it's been there from the very beginning. But also the Bible teaches us, and Paul is teaching us here, the purity of the marriage relationship. He says in verse 2, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, that is, to avoid sexual immorality. Now let me stress this point again. If marriage was just to avoid fornication, it would suggest to me that Paul had a very low view of marriage. This is not the case. We, we've got to keep the focus here. Paul is simply responding to the question he has been asked by the Corinthian church. One of the reasons for marriage, Paul is saying, is to avoid sin. Now, that's not the only reason that people marry. In fact, there are several reasons the Bible gives for marriage. One of the reasons, of course, as we mentioned already, is the purpose of replenishing for bringing children into the world. So that's one of the purposes, procreation. Another reason for marriage is for companionship. God said, I will make for a man a help, helper suitable to him, a companion for him. What a wonderful thing the companionship of marriage is. I hope if you're married here tonight, uh, dear sister, that your husband is your best friend. And I hope, dear brother, if you're married here tonight, that uh, your wife is your best friend. Marriage is a pleasurable experience. In fact, God has said it was good. Hebrews 13, the Bible says these words. It says marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. God teaches the purity of the marriage relationship. When God gave the principle one man for one woman and one woman for one man, that of course lets us know 
that any other relationship doesn't work. You can't have another person in the marriage relationship. It's one man and one woman. It also means that one man and one woman teaches us that homosexual marriage is wrong. There is no such thing as homosexual marriage. God's pattern is one man and one woman. Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 also shows us that the marriage relationship is to be a beautiful picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. So you see, your marriage ought to be a testimony to a lost world of just how much the Savior loves the church and how he gave his life for his church. And if a husband loves his wife in the way that he ought to love her, he is bearing testimony to a lost world of the great love of the Lord Jesus Christ for lost people. So the Bible sets before us the monogamy of Christian marriage. I don't want to go on without addressing something that is currently live in the evangelical world. And maybe some of you are aware of this, some of you may not be. There's been a lot of talk recently as to whether a Christian should attend the so-called homosexual marriage and a lot of talk recently as to whether a Christian should attend a transgender marriage. Should they bring a gift to a wedding such as this to appear what has been described as compassionate and loving? So a conversation has come from some council that Alistair Begg gave to a person in his congregation. You listen carefully to my preaching, which I hope you do. From time to time I would have quoted uh, Pastor Alistair Begg. He has been someone who I have benefited from his faithful Bible teaching over many years. However, let me say from Grange Baptist pulpit this evening, he is wrong on this issue. And I want you to know that the answer as to whether you should attend a homosexual or transgender wedding on the grounds of compassion and Christian love is that you absolutely should not. You have no business being there. It is blasphemy. It is an abomination. It is not to be supported or celebrated. It is to be rejected and exposed. By attending, you're supporting this and celebrating a gross sin. And by attending a wedding such as these, you're supporting an attack on the sanctity and purity of marriage. My prayer is that Alistair Begg will repent of his counsel that he gave to this lady. Alistair Begg is someone that I have looked up to as a young pastor for years. Much of his teaching, the majority of his teaching is excellent. But I cannot stand by his teaching and counsel that he has given to this grandmother. We're moving on. Uh, the sanctity of marriage, the purity of marriage. But I want you to see now also the harmony of Christian marriage. I want you to see the obligation within the marriage relationship to each other. Look at verse 3. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. You've got to understand something here. What was happening in Corinth was this. Some of these people were married before they were saved as unbelievers. And maybe one of them became a Christian. And they got this crazy notion into their heads that the only way to be a Christian then was to be celibate. And so not only do they come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but as far as their marriage partner is concerned, they've gone crazy because they were saying the celibate life is the only way for a Christian to live. So Paul says that their overzealousness to be spiritual led them to neglect and to deny the needs of their spouse. They misunderstood 
the marriage bond. I think it's probably more common, it would have been more common, and this is just my opinion, of those people who were converted and their spouse wasn't converted, that they decided to be this way. Well, I can't sleep with a person that's not a Christian, whether my husband or wife, and so I'll remain celibate, and that seemed to be what was happening. So they were essentially being single within the marriage bond. Paul says to them, and we'll see this in a later week in verses 10 to 17, it doesn't matter whether you're a believer and your wife's a believer or, or whether you're a believer and, and they're not or vice versa. You're, you're not to deprive your husband or your wife from your duty. God sees marriage as sacred and he sees the sexual union as sacred. He sees it as pure. He sees it as proper. But he also sees it, Paul is saying, uh, as something that is a responsibility, it's a privilege, it's a pleasure, but it's also a responsibility within the marriage bond. So Paul is saying, husband or wife, wife or husband, it's the same deal. You've got duties, and he says, I want you to fulfill your duties to your marriage partner. Incidentally, the tense of the verb is the present continuous tense, making it clear that this is a habitual duty, something that should happen often. Those of you who are husband and wife, without me saying too much more in this verse, work it out for yourself. Uh, you have a duty to fulfill, and the duty is a habitual duty. But understand what the verse says, physical intimacy in marriage is not only sacred, but it is proper and it is a responsibility. The responsibility is on the part of each partner uh, to give sexual satisfaction to the other. That's our duty. Paul says, I want you to pay your duty. Due benevolence, in verse 3, in the marriage framework, don't start this nonsense about celibacy as if you're some super Christian. Now, he goes on and he gives an explanation of the obligation that he has set out in verse 3. He says you have a debt to your spouse to satisfy them and vice versa. But notice the emphasis. It's not your right. It's not your right. It's something, it's not, it's something that you have to seek for your spouse. It's something that you do for them. It, it's the giving of Christian love. It's your debt to them. It's your duty. Paul gives this explanation in verse 4. The wife hath not power of her own body. Everyone would have said amen in Corinth to that, that, where women were trodden to the ground. But wait a minute, Paul goes on and he says, Neither has the husband authority over his body. There is an equality in marriage. There's different roles. But there's an equality in Christ of male and female. And it's the same in the church. There is neither male nor female. There's, there's different roles. But this in this marriage bond, you're not your own. And we see in chapter 6, strictly speaking, that the body is for God and that we're to present it as a living sacrifice. But in the marriage bond, the body is for your spouse. And it's not an optional extra. And all things in marriage, physical intimacy... To your, uh, and our devotion to one another, we are to love and we are to serve each other sacrificially. That is what creates harmony in marriage. It's serving the other person. Is that not what Christ did for his church? 
he came to serve. He, he came to give his life. And that is what we are called to do within the marriage bond. Serve one another. Beginning of verse 5, Paul says, don't defraud one another. Another translation says, stop depriving one another. And it's a command of scripture as legitimate as any other command in the word of God. If you don't like what it says there, don't get married. It's as simple as that. And I want to quote a man called Laurel Johnston. This is what he said. The word defraud could be translated. Do not refuse one another. Do not cheat one another. Do not rob one another. Sexual in intimacy, he's speaking about within a marriage. And he says se sexual intimacy within a marriage is not a right to be earned. It's not a reward to be given. It's not a tool to be used as a threat. Um, it's not a, a means of punishment because of some mistake or even uh, or, or to get even or to get what you want from the other person, your spouse. When we deprive our spouse, he says, Satan can use that to tempt our spouse to become unfaithful. You're tempting them. You're also destroying a spiritual principle, that of ministering to one another. Paul says the only exception, and here it is, the only exception is if by consent for a time, verse 5, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, that you separate in this physical capacity. Now we hear a lot about consent, don't we? It's an age of consent. But we don't hear too much about this type of consent. Where there's consent between a husband and a wife to separate, phys uh, and a wife to separate physically, for a period of time to fast and pray to God. It's amazing this. Has to be for a specific time, for a specific purpose, and together agreed. And the word literally here, agreement, is the word symphony. And this speaks of spiritual harmony. That is what the marriage bond should be, a, a physical symphony, but also a spiritual symphony. And here's a question for all of us. Is there ever a time when in your marriage bond that you've decided that you're going to have a time of prayer and fasting? And there's a burden maybe that God puts upon you so great for some particular thing that you've each got the liberty to go away and drop everything and seek God. I'll tell you, some of the reason why husbands and wives don't go onwards and upwards with God is because their husband or their wife is holding them back. Listen, dear brothers and sisters, tonight, let me take this back a step. Do you read and pray with your spouse? Maybe some of us these days could start there. Dear husband, dear wife, don't you hold your spouse back from the Lord. Man, thank God if you've got a godly wife. Thank God for this gift that has been given to you. Sisters, thank God if you've been given a godly husband that doesn't pull down your standards. But thank God for relationships where husbands and wives pull each other up and point each other towards Christ's standards. Move to verse 6. Paul says, but I speak this by permission and not of commandment. This verse can be helpfully paraphrased in this way. Paul's saying, I'm not saying you must marry. 
but you certainly may if you wish. So he's, he's not telling single people that they have to get married as a command. He's telling them that they may get married if they want to, and they mustn't listen to the people who tell them that the only spiritual way to live your life is in singleness or to be married. And he's been laying it down thick and heavy in these five verses, the duties of those who are married, but he, but he, but he doesn't lay down a duty that people should be married. In fact, in verse 7 he says, uh, he says this, For I would that all men were even as I myself. But every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner, and another after that. And he says, I say therefore to the unmarried and widows. And I believe that he's referring to himself in this part as being unmarried. And for some, God has given them the gift of remaining single. And that is to serve him more effectively in that state. We could think of some missionaries that have gone on to be with the Savior this year. We could think of Dr. Bill Woods. We could think of Maud Kales. We could even think of Amy Carmichael, people like that. All who gave their lives to the Lord, who all served in singleness and served him well. Whatever you're, and some of us, to some of us, the gift of singleness is given to us. I will explain more about that in other weeks. Some who are single are maybe seeking to be married, and that's okay. But whatever your gift and calling is, there's one thing for all of us to do, and it comes through very clearly in Corinthians, also in other places. In First Thessalonians 4, 3 and 4, it sums up well. It says, this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honour. We have seen the words in verse 2 this evening, nevertheless, uh, nevertheless, avoid fornication. We have seen in verse 18 of the previous chapter that we are to flee fornication. We have seen this evening that marriage is something that is sanctified, it is holy, it is of God. It is something that is uh, pure and it is lovely. And it is something that God has designed. And God has designed marriage to have harmony within it. The harmony in Christian marriage is that there is an obligation to love one another and to be that picture of Christ who loved his church and gave himself for it. To live in spiritual harmony. To live in a way where we pull each other together and pull each other closer to Christ. wonder is that what your marriage looks like? Wonder is it what my marriage looks like? How we ought to pull each other closer to Christ. Do plan and coming back in the next few weeks, don't disappear because we took this topic up. Uh, we're going to be looking at the few verses following and they, they teach us divine principles of marriage. We're going to be looking at people who are married to non-Christians. That, that topic is dealt with in this passage. Uh, we're going to be looking at the situation of people whose husbands and wives have left them. That's dealt with in chapter 7 of Corinthians. But we're going to be looking a little bit on divorce and other things and uh, the principles for a good marriage under God. Then in a number of weeks ahead as we go through this chapter, we'll be dealing with singleness, as we've mentioned, and how to use your singleness effectively for Christ. And that will be in a few weeks' time. So don't forget about these studies. Do come back under the sound of God's word 
and do encourage others to come too. If you know younger ones that you can invite along, not not teenagers, but those who are maybe in their late teens and who maybe are looking towards marriage or looking for a, a partner in life, these are good verses for them to hear because the world has their ear. The world has their ear. And these are the principles that are set out in Scripture. They're awkward verses to preach, but they're here and we're going through First Corinthians and we'll seek to honour God's word. And we will seek to teach what is written therein. Let's pray and we'll hand back to Brian. Our Father, we bow in thy presence this evening and we thank you that every word that is found within this book before us is inspired by the Spirit of God and is there for our teaching, is there to reprove us, is there to correct us. And Father, we thank you that when we think of the picture of marriage in Scripture, how it paints that lovely picture of Christ and his church. We thank you, Father, for the one who so willing to die for his bride, uh, the one who shed his precious blood for her. Father, we thank you that we as the church, the bride of Christ, one day uh, will stand before him. And Father, we praise you and we thank you for the love that has been shown to us. So many of our hymns this evening have taken up that theme, the love that Jesus had for me to suffer on the cruel tree that I a ransomed soul might be. It's more than tongue can tell. Oh, Father, we could never speak of the love that Christ had for us and speak of it fully. Loved with everlasting love, led by grace, that love to know. Father, we thank you that we are so loved by you. And, Father, we pray that, with, that for those of us who are married, that indeed within our marriages, that we would reflect that picture that we're supposed to, that we would love each other sacrificially, that we would serve one another as we ought. Father, teach us and show us where we go wrong. Give us the grace and help that we need. But, oh, Father, that each of us would draw one another closer to our Saviour, closer to Christ. Father, for those who are maybe single, Father, I pray for them. I thank you for them. Some may be still looking for that, that one, that person. And, Father, we pray that you would bless them and you would lead them to that person in your will and in your time. And Father, we pray for those here this evening who are widows and miss that dear loved one who did draw them closer to Christ well on earth. And Father, we pray that you would draw near to them and bless them in these days. We thank you, Father, that you are with them. And we thank you that you draw near to them. And we thank you, Father, that your word tells us that you're the helper to the widow. And we thank you, Father, that you draw near in that way. Father, as we come to our time of prayer now, we ask, Father, that we would know the almighty presence of God with us. Uh, that, Father, as we petition your throne with our requests, uh, that, Father, indeed, we would know that your listening ear is here with us. Thank you for the answered prayer of the past. And, Father, we just pray all this in the precious name of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>